This morning we will finish our series on Christmas fathers and mothers. Uh, we begin the series by looking at God the Father and the eternal covenant that was made within the Trinity. It was a covenant made before the foundation of the world that was an agreement to save elect sinners by the grace of God alone. That eternal agreement is known often as the covenant of redemption, and in it we see that the salvation of sinners was purposed by God the Father. The salvation of sinners was accomplished by the Son, and then we see that salvation applied to individual people by the Spirit. And so this eternal covenant really was the catalyst behind the other covenants that we see in the scriptures culminating in the new covenant. We saw God's, we've seen God's covenant promises referred to in the stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've seen the covenant promises referred to also in what took place with Joseph and Mary, the Son of God taking on human flesh and coming into the world as Emmanuel is really core to what was agreed on in eternity past in the covenant of redemption. And it's no surprise to note that what we'll be looking at this morning from Matthew chapter 2 is also going to ultimately take us to the promise of the new covenant. Matthew 2 deals with the coming of the wise men, Herod trying to kill the Christ child, Joseph and Mary fleeing, and then ultimately coming back to Israel and then living in Nazareth, raising Christ there in Nazareth. It's one of the main chapters in the Bible that speaks of the events surrounding and close to the, the birth of the Messiah. And this chapter especially makes it clear that there were lots of evil wicked things that were taking place at the same time. There were many things that gave a bitter taste to life that we'll see, but none of those things were sufficient to stop the Lord from keeping his promises. Matthew wrote his gospel with the perspective of the Jewish people in mind. Uh, he begins with a genealogy in chapter 1 to make it clear to his Jewish readers that Joseph was from the family of David, Luke does the same thing, and he directs, points out that Mary was also of the family of David. Matthew also gives much attention to the many things that were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. In chapter 2 alone, there are four different examples of things that took place that were prophesied and then fulfilled in some way in the coming of Christ into the world. One of those prophecies concerns the male children who were killed by Herod in Bethlehem. Matthew connects that horrible event with a verse from Jeremiah 31:15. So let me read for you. Matthew 2:17 to 18 says, "Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more." Honestly, this is a challenging verse to understand exactly what Matthew has in mind here. We'll get to the details of that later. But as you can see, he makes reference to Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, uh, sons of Jacob. And the one point that I want to make here at the beginning from this passage from now is that this was an event that's being referred to that was an event of great sadness and bitterness. 
It's horrible when we consider what happened at Bethlehem at that time. It's an illustration of just many horrible and bitter things that happened in conjunction with the birth of Jesus Christ. So what was so it's what is interesting here, we see something that's so terribly bitter, and at the same time, something that was so wonderfully sweet happening at at the same time, within the same event. And as we all know, that's still true today and how that takes place. Uh, Mattingly started us off reading Matthew 2. I'm going to go ahead and read it again. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter now, and then we're going to go back and look through what's going on here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means at least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, he, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all his vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is this. The wicked actions of King Herod and those around him are examples of the bitter circumstances that are often seen in the world. Jesus was born in the jurisdiction where Herod governed. 
Herod had been named king by, uh, of Judea by Augustus and Antony, uh, who were rulers of the Roman Empire. Herod had great dream, dreams of just of his empire expanding, and he spent a lot of money trying to impress the Roman rulers uh, and to impress the people where he ruled. He ruled as king for about 35 years, had been ruling for about 35 years when Jesus was born. But one thing what we know about him, he was known to be a very cruel man and was hated really by most of the Jewish people. So here's an example to us of this first, next point on your outline. Civil magistrates who are ungodly and govern in evil ways are bitter realities that often have to be endured. There are a number of things in this passage that reveal to us what kind of man Herod was. We know first he was a man who had a great inward resistance to the things of God. Because when the wise men came to Jerusalem asking about the one who had been born king of the Jews, we see some descriptions of how Herod responded to this news. It says he was deeply troubled. The word there means, speaks of being greatly agitated, deeply perturbed, and just alarmed. So we can tell by Herod's response later in verse 4 that he clearly understood that the words of the wise men were a reference to the promised Messiah. And it's clear that Herod was not a believer in this coming Messiah. This actually reminds me of Romans 8, 7, which describes the heart of a person who is not a believer. It says this, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Herod was hostile in mind toward the things of God. In fact, really that's how we all are until God changes our hearts. Furthermore, this agitation was also an outright rejection of Jesus Christ as king. It's clear that Matthew really, uh, as you read those early verses, Matthew's intentionally drawing a parallel between Herod the king and Christ the king. And not only is he inwardly resistant to God, but his hostility shows itself in the things that he does. In verse 13, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Herod is not going to tolerate anyone threatening his authority. Earlier in his life, in Herod's life, he had his wife and his two sons killed because he was suspicious of them. Caesar Augustus made this kind of infamous quote about Herod. He said, it's it's better to be Herod's swine than his son. At this point, he's around 70 years old here in Matthew 2, and he's not about to let any two-year-old boy threaten him. Herod understood what the question of the Magi was all about. And so he gathered, it says he gathered the priests together. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said in Bethlehem of Judea. This is one of those places where Matthew points us to the prophecy written by the prophet. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means at least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod was not a believer, but he knew about the prophecies of a coming Messiah. He gets the chief priest, he gets the scribes to give him more information. They share what they share is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it confirms not only will this child be born in Bethlehem, but he will, in fact, be a ruler 
And even though this is the word of God, Herod is not willing to submit in any fashion. Instead, he uses this information to help him scheme against the newborn child by lying to the wise men. He pretends that he wants to worship the child, but what he really intends to do is to kill him. Herod was an evil man from every angle. Wicked, unethical, deceitful, and ungodly civil magistrates are bitter realities that citizens often have to put up with. We certainly have our share in our country. It makes you especially grateful, on the other hand, for upright and true statesmen that we are sometimes blessed with. Well, there's another thing in this passage that gives a glimpse of how bitter the times were. The next point is this. Religious people who have little or no genuine interest in the scriptures and the gospel of Christ bring bitter disappointment. In verse 4, we see that Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. The chief priests may be a reference to the Sanhedrin. They were the religious leaders of the Jewish people. The scribes, the business of the scribes was to study the law of God. Well, they correctly answer Herod's question about where the Messiah was to be born by that reference to Micah chapter 5. And so they understood what the Bible said about this. The problem here is what they did afterward, which was nothing. Here they have a situation where a miraculous star has led some Persian philosophers to travel a great distance to look for one who was born king of the Jews. The situation in the scripture that they refer to are clearly pointing to the coming of the Messiah. You would think that religious leaders would at least show some curiosity about whether these things were really true. But we get no indication that they did anything. As far as we can tell, they answer Herod's question and then go about their business as usual. And it seems so that while Herod was hostile toward the promised Messiah, the religious leaders were indifferent. It's a real tragedy when people who have great access to the scriptures do not hold firm to the truths that are taught there. Many act in apathetic ways toward the word of God. Others do their best to dilute what the Bible teaches. Some go out of their way to encourage Christians to doubt whether the Bible can really be trusted. So when you're in a time where there are many people who profess to be Christians but in reality are indifferent or even hostile toward the scriptures, you're in a time of bitter disappointment. Another very disturbing thing that we see in these verses is this. The intentional shedding of innocent blood is a bitter abomination to God that occurs often in this world. In verse 13, we are told that Herod was going to search for the child to destroy him. And then in verse 16... We see that Herod was greatly insulted when the Magi did not return to give him a report as he asked them to do. In fact, it says he became enraged. So he sent soldiers to take all male children two years and under from the parents and kill them. 
This was done in Bethlehem, which is about five miles from Jerusalem. They would probably go about more the appearance of the child instead of inquiring about a birth date. It's actually estimated that this would probably be 15 to 20 young boys who were murdered. 25 years ago, John Piper wrote a book that I was reminded of this week called The Innkeeper. Some of you may have it. Some of you may have read it. It's about this incident. It's really a, it's a book really it's, it's in, in poetry form that he wrote. And what he imagines is Jesus going back to the place of his birth just before he was crucified. He met the man who was the innkeeper where Joseph and Mary stayed. And in conversation with the old man, Jesus finds out that the man's young son was killed because it became known that he made accommodations for Joseph and Mary. Now, we don't know any of the actual stories of any of the children or the families that were affected, but the whole scene is just horrific. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19 says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. All seven of the things listed there in that passage from Proverbs are characteristics of King Herod. And they're all described as being abominations to God. We, of course, live in a time where the shedding of innocent blood is common in the form of abortion. It was just about a month and a half ago that citizens of Ohio voted to inscribe the right to shed innocent blood into our state constitution. So we have the right to do what's an abomination to God. So God help us. The next point is an application of the scripture that Matthew quotes in reference to this event. So the unbelief and rebellion of citizens that lead, leads to God's divine chastisement on the nation is a bitter thing to endure. So under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew chose Jeremiah 31, verse 15, as the scripture that was fulfilled in the killing of the innocent children. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet was writing to the children of Israel. They were the ones, these, and the ones he were writing to were those who were alive when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and then took the people into captivity back to Babel, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar actually ordered the people who were being taken into captivity to assemble at Ramah, the town was about five miles north of Jerusalem, about 10 miles from Bethlehem. It's in the jurisdiction of Benjamin, whose mother was Rachel. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet is acknowledging the great grief of the people, especially the mothers, of being forcibly removed from the land, uh, from the land of Israel and taken to Egypt, taken to Babylon, I'm sorry. Now, there's more applications about this that we're going to look at later. But first, the question is this. Why were the people of Israel even in this predicament? 
How did it come? How did they come to the place to be thoroughly defeated and enslaved by the armies of Babylon? It was God's judgment on the nation. They had rebelled against the Lord for so long that God finally pronounced judgment on the Jewish people. They were guilty of idolatry. They had rejected the law of God. They would not listen to the teaching and the warnings of the prophets. God was patient, but his patience doesn't last forever. Judgment was pronounced, and the people addressed in Jeremiah 31 were experiencing that judgment. It's a bitter thing to endure the judgment of God on a nation because of their sin and unbelief, and to some degree, maybe to a large degree. That's beginning to happen in our country as well, I think. So the second chapter of Matthew gives us quite a discouraging picture just of bitter circumstances that were characteristic of the world into which the Messiah was born. But there's also hope. Our second main point is this. In the midst of bitterness over sinful things, God always provides hopeful examples that are of great help to believers. I want to mention two examples in the chapter of how God was actively working, even in the middle of such evil. The first example is this. The faith, obedience, and joyful worship of the Magi in the middle of a chapter full of bitter things is a great example for believers. It's really quite a remarkable story. It's generally understood that these men were philosophers of a sort, specializing in astronomy, astrology, sorcery. They came from a pagan country. So how do they come to know about the prophecy of one who they called the king of the Jews. Well, we don't know for sure. But it's possible that they had access to the writings of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet who was one of the Jews who was taken from Israel and forced to live in Babylon in exile. He wrote a number of things that were prophecies of the coming Messiah. Of course, it was the Persians who invaded Babylon and took over while Daniel was still there. So it's quite, possi <clears throat> it's quite possible that Daniel's writings were available to the wise men. But why would these writings take on such importance that these men were willing to take an extremely long journey to find this promised king? Well, I think the answer is probably God's work of regeneration in their hearts. In John 3, verse 7, these are some verses where Jesus describes that work. He says, don't be amazed that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Lord may have used the writings of Daniel to cause these men to be born again. The wind of the Spirit blows where it wishes. It's a sovereign work of God. It seems that God gave these men saving faith <coughs> and a heart to know the Lord more fully. In fact, they were willing to take a long and dangerous journey to confirm the things that they had come to understand. I mean, this is quite a contrast with the religious leaders and with Herod, they knew the prophecies much better and much more thoroughly 
than the wise men did. And they were only five miles from Bethlehem. But the religious leaders don't seek him at all. At best, as we said, they were indifferent. So even when no one else around the Magi were seeking the Lord, they did. God had done something life-changing in their hearts. We also see that they had joy in the Lord. In verse 10, we're told that when they got sight once more of the star that would lead them to the child, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Well, what were they, re- what were they rejoicing about? Was it because this was some scientific experiment and helped their, in their understanding of astronomy? It was because this star was his star. It was the star of the Messiah, and their hearts were inclined toward him. So they rejoiced exceedingly over that. Their faith, their seeking, their joy also resulted in worship. They announced in the very beginning in verse 2 that they had come to worship the child. And then we read what actually happened when they found the child in verse 11. It says, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This was a worship based on truth. They find a small child with his mother, very poor, humble circumstances, I'm sure. Nothing like what you would expect for a king. The people who had more truth than they did, the chief priests, the scribes, and Herod, clearly did not have faith to believe this truth. But these men believed that this was the Messiah by faith. When they came into that house, there were no miracles. There was no halo around the boy's head. There was no signs of divinity. He was a little two-year-old boy. But they knew by faith that this was the promised Messiah. This was the divine Savior, so they worship. In fact, they fall to the ground prostrating themselves before him. They were acknowledging their submission to his lordship. He was their king. It was tradition among the Persians to bring gifts when they were to come before a king. And the very fact of their gifts is further acknowledgement of their faith in the Messiah as being the newborn king. I mean, just so encouraging. And remember that all these just amazing things happen in the midst of very bitter circumstances. And God is still bringing men, women, boys, and girls to Christ in miraculous ways. That's still happening. A second hopeful thing to note, take note of is this. God's providential shepherding of the Magi, Joseph, and Mary in the midst of the wicked deeds of others is an encouragement to believers. So in the midst of a cruel king, religious leaders who had, who had little genuine interest in the scriptures, God providentially brought men all the way from Persia to worship the newborn Christ. He not only put that holy desire in their heart, he also provided a star to guide them. He also watched over them physically as they took this long journey. And then the Lord warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod because he had evil intentions. So they returned to their country by a different route. In God's good providence, they were brought to worship the Christ child 
and then return to their home in the midst of the danger associated with a wicked king. And then we see the Lord warning Joseph in a dream about Herod's plan to search for the child to kill him. That prompted Joseph to flee with his family to Egypt. Interesting enough, Herod died just probably just a couple months after these evil things he did, trying to murder the Christ child. I would personally consider that God's providential judgment on a wicked man. At this point, then, the Lord once again guided Joseph to return to Israel, but then Joseph realized that it was Herod's son, Archelaus, who was now reigning over Judah. He was known to be just as evil as his father. So once again, the Lord directed Joseph to take his family to Galilee out of Archelaus's jurisdiction. They came to Nazareth, which was a city that was despised by many of the Jews, and that's where the Son of God grew up. All the way through, we have a situation that was fraught with danger, and the Lord shepherded first the Magi and then Joseph and Mary. There were people all around who were hostile to the Christ, but the Lord brought his people through. He's still doing that. In the midst of bitter evil, the Lord continues to watch over, to guard, to guide, to encourage those who are his. He's always providing a godly way of escape for believers in every temptation and every trial. We can absolutely trust him for that. And that gives us hope. But there's much greater hope in this chapter than that. So our third point is this. The greatest hope for a world full of bitterness is the Messiah and the eternal salvation that he provides. So look again at verse 16 through 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all his vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what was spoken through the Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. As we noted, Matthew is drawing a parallel between the grief of those who were preparing to go into exile into Babylon and those who had to deal with the slaughter at Bethlehem. So we see here, first point we need to notice is this. The defeated Israelites being taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Bethlehem in Herod's day had reasons for great mourning and hopeless despair. Hopeless despair. Matthew refers to Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, of course, was Jacob's wife, and for many, many years she was unable to have children. This was very grievous to her. And then Joseph was born. He was Jacob's favorite because Rachel was his favorite wife. But the brothers, of course, were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. And then they told Jacob and Rachel that he was dead. Again, Rachel grieves the loss of her son. She had another son, Benjamin, very protective of him. Rachel was end up, end up being buried near Bethlehem. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet refers to Rachel because of what the nation was going through. The Israelites were in 
great mourning because their nation, Jerusalem, their temple, had all been destroyed. The survivors were being rounded up to be taken to Babylon, and there was just bitter grief because it seemed to them that there was now no hope for their nation. This was the end, and their hearts were broken. And Jeremiah refers to Rachel's grief as a picture of what they were going through. The example of Rachel is also used to speak of the grief that the people of Bethlehem were dealing with. Matthew refers to Rachel it's almost as if she was raised from the dead and was kind of joining with the weeping um, of those who had lost children in Bethlehem. But it was not only <coughs> a weeping for the children. There were those, I think there were likely those, who would have heard maybe from the shepherds, maybe from the wise men or from others, that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. So if the holy child was murdered along with the other children, they were truly hopeless. This was the hope for salvation for sinners. If the Savior had been killed before he could earn that salvation, there was nothing left but despair. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. As far as the Savior being killed as a child, we know that didn't happen. God intervened such that Joseph removed his family from harm. People of Bethlehem didn't know that. That's why we read in verse 18, they refused to be comforted. But there was every reason to be comforted. The Christ child lived. So mourning that resulted in hopeless despair was not warranted. It wasn't that they were hopeless. They just didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. As far as there being no hope for the nation of Israel, we know that the hopeless lament of the people there was not warranted either. One of Jeremiah's purposes in writing his book was not only to warn the people of coming judgment, he did that very clearly, but also he wrote to give great encouragement in the midst of, of this great despair of destruction and exile of the nation. And just like with the people of Bethlehem, the people of Israel who were gathered in Ramah going to exile refused to be comforted. But Jeremiah had prophesied a couple of times already that the exile would only last for 70 years. And then they would be able to return to their homeland. They'd be able to rebuild. So once again, mourning that resulted in hopeless despair was not warranted. But their hope goes much further than that. In our final point, we see this. The hope of the new covenant in Jesus Christ was promised and accomplished in the midst of bitter hate. Nothing could hinder the Lord from completing his glorious salvation work. When I say, when I speak of Jeremiah chapter 31, even the number chapter 31 of Jeremiah might sound familiar to you. That is the chapter where one of the most well-known prophecies of the new covenant is found. And all through that chapter, the prophet is encouraging the people, even in the midst of judgment. Let me give you some of the things at the beginning of, 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 uh, of uh, Jeremiah 31. He says things like this, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. They shall be my people. 
He speaks of his grace. He speaks of his everlasting love for them. He says they will have reason to dance and sing aloud with gladness. He promises to lead them and keep them as a shepherd keeps his flock. He says they will be satisfied with his goodness. And then at that point, that's where Jeremiah 31, 15 comes in. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And Jeremiah acknowledges then their bitter weeping, but he's telling them it's not necessary. There is much to be encouraged about. And it's just a few verses later that the prophet gives the greatest encouragement of all. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. <clears throat> Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the promise of the new covenant, quoted verbatim in the book of Hebrews. This is the covenant that was first purposed in the eternal covenant of redemption. It finds its fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah into the world. So the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished the new covenant for all who would believe. Jew and Gentile alike. And that new covenant was promised in the same chapter where the people of Israel were mourning over their captivity and everything was hopeless. But it wasn't hopeless. And also, by Matthew's, as Matthew does this, we have still the context of, the, of, the, of, of, of applying it to the people of Bethlehem who were mourning over the death of their children much to, be, to mourn about, and the possible death of the Christ child as well. But they were wrong about that part. Nothing could stop or hinder the Lord from accomplishing salvation for his people. And no matter how much bitter evil there is in the world, God will accomplish his good purpose. In John Piper's book called The Innkeeper, I told you how he imagines Jesus coming back to the place of his birth in Bethlehem, Piper further imagines the young son of the innkeeper, who he calls Jacob. He calls the innkeeper Jacob. He says, imagine him being the first one killed by Herod's soldiers. By the way, he also imagined the innkeeper's wife, who he names Rachel, dying while trying to defend her son against the soldiers. Jesus weeps with the innkeeper. And then he says this. This is the, the, end, the last couple pages of the book. Jesus says, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. 
You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live and another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them Jacob back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises that you give us. And I thank you just for the, just the whole way these truths are presented in the book, in, in this in the second chapter of Matthew, acknowledging just such evil, such bitterness, just such unbelief that was just rampant murder, just all through this chapter. And at the same time, we see so much evidence of your work in the lives of individual people. We so much see so much evidence of you watching over your people, even in the midst of really hard circumstances. And Lord, we are told of the greatest hope of all, and that is Jesus Christ, who came to accomplish salvation for sinners like us. Lord, we have all kinds of things in life that cause us to feel hopeless and despair, just deeply discouraged, whatever it might be. I thank you for what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. I thank you for the salvation that is ours because of Christ. And Lord, just thank you again for this time of the year where we have special time to remember this. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to, to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I have not lived up to what you called me to, to do. I have all kinds of sin in my life. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world for people like me. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord and King of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.